Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast where we're helping you fill the gap between what you want to do with your money and what you actually do. We are professional investors, writers, and financial planners helping you navigate the complexities of finance to optimize what you can control and cut out the rest. Join your host, Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese, as we discuss the questions and nuances surrounding everyday money management. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Blind Spots. Today, we've got a fun topic that we think people need to hear. We are not trying to pound the table on the same subject, but it has become increasingly more obvious that people, like we've said in the past, need to hear things several times for it to sink in. And we've talked about having information filters, being careful about what you read and watch, and filtering out the noise. But today we are going to be kind of talking about that again and helping you become aware of the information that you're consuming and how it pertains to your personal situation. Is that fair? Well, and to be a bit more direct, there is an epidemic of pessimism out there right now from investors to financial media to your friends and family. It seems like everywhere I turn, I'm getting predictions about the collapse of the US dollar and we're in a recession and banks are gonna fail and things are gonna get worse. And I've been doing this for almost 20 years. I managed money during the great financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, which many consider the worst crisis that we've seen in our lifetimes. It's, it's certainly the worst crisis that I've been through. And sentiment now is worse than it was then. People pounding the table that things have to get worse is worse today than it was back then. And my goal today is to bring people back to the center. You know, it's fine to consume media. It's fine to read doomsday stuff. It's fine to huddle around people that share your same views, but it's also constructive to look at the opposite side, to look at the evidence. And what I wanna do is share some realities that are happening today, also through the context of what's happened over the last 86 years. And I've said this before, and I believe it to be more true today than ever. It's okay to be bearish. It's okay to be aware of risks. It's okay to be prudent, but it's not okay to stay hunkered down. It's not okay to be a perma bear. That behavior has not been rewarded and it's not conducive to good investment results. So I think what we should do is kind of juxtapose what the media is putting out versus what, like you said, bringing back bring people back to reality and center them based on what's actually happening. So why don't you start off with the Wells Fargo note that you read this morning and your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, so I'll zoom out a little bit. One, I think people need to understand that financial media is a form of entertainment. It's, it's propaganda, it's entertaining, it's fodder. It's just people talking, right? And their aim, their overarching goal is to get you to watch, to get you to engage, to get you to open, to get you to click. You are the product, okay? It doesn't matter what they say. Actually, the more sensational their headlines are, the more engagement that they get, the more ad spend that they receive. So their goal is to sell ads to other companies selling their product on, on their program. That's their goal, okay? The more outlandish stuff you say, the better for them. So I think you need to understand the game TV and media and print all play. I think thinking Aaron, about advertisement in that way and, you know, you're watching CNBC and you see a 
large RIA pop up on the screen or some fund company advertising their newest fund. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart, but the reason that they're running ads is to make money. Well, but, but, but the whole point for the companies producing content that sell ads on their program, like the more eyes you have on your TV show, the higher mm -hmm. the ad spend that you get, the more advertisers and companies are willing to pay to get in front of those eyeballs. So I think if you understand the incentive, you can better understand some of the things coming out of these programs. Okay, so that's that's the overarching thing. So back to your question. So this morning I'm on my terminal and I see a Wells Fargo note scroll atop, across the top of my screen. And the Wells Fargo note read that the bank expects the S&P 500 to go down by 10% in the next three to six months. And I'm like, okay. Is anyone getting fired if that doesn't happen? Uh, does anyone get a pay cut if that doesn't happen? Uh, no and no, but it is streaming on top of my terminal and the Wells Fargo person is on Bloomberg today talking about that analyst note about the market going down by 10% over the next three to six months. That's mission accomplished, right? That's, that's their aim. They don't care what happens. They want your eyes on them. So maybe you, Somehow we're intrigued and say, oh, you know, Wells is kind of uh, smart here. You know, I agree with their thesis. I'm going to call up my local Wells Fargo branch and try to get in front of an advisor. That's what they want. But in no way, shape, or form are they accountable for the results of that random prediction. They can say, people can say whatever they want. But once what ends up happening too, so, th so this is kind of the genesis of why I think this is important to have this chat. Probably once a day. I get forwarded a note like this for Morgan Stanley or Wells Fargo or Merrill Lynch with uh, specs or clients asking me about it like it's gospel, like you can set your watch to that happening. And there's mm -hmm. so many things to unpack. It becomes overwhelming. And I think if you don't have a filter for this stuff and you don't understand the game that others are playing to get you to engage in these things, it's hard to listen to everything because you end up listening to nothing and you get paralyzed and you get confused. And what I've talked about in the past is many people seek out opinions or gravitate towards opinions that are like theirs, right? That feels good. That's, that's, a, that's a confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. What I always encourage people is to look at the other side. Look at what's happening now. Look at an optimistic forecast, which is much there, – there's a human tendency not to do that. But in my writings lately, I've, I've really tried to look at markets, bond markets, stock markets through an empirical lens, what's actually happened – also reconciling that with what's happening now, you know, in this blog that I just wrote, you know, I asked people to consume news for 30 days, let's say, and then at the end of the 30-day period, excuse me, during the 30-day period, you could not look at what markets were doing. So you're just reading news for 30 days. You couldn't look at what markets were doing. And I asked them to guess how the market performed over the past 30 days. And it, just to refresh your memory, we had a banking crisis. We have you know, this recession talk, we've got the Fed still in a tough spot. We have inflation still uh, that's slowing, but it's still too high. And I would bet nine, 99 out of 100 people would have said the market was down. The market was actually up. So that's not going to make front page news. Me telling people things are going to be okay. There's nothing to see here. That's boring. That comes off as aloof and unaware of risks. But if I tell you the dollar is going to collapse, this bank's going to collapse, uh, China is going to invade such and such country. Like, he, like you lean in, that sounds smart, and you want to learn more. That's what's happening over and over again, and it's really become an epidemic. So 
you've touched on it a little bit, but give us some of the stats. We kind of had a fun conversation in the office this morning about historical performance, things that happen after a down year. Run through some of those. Sure. So as most know, I'm a big fan of history. And again, this is not like, I don't want to confuse people. This is not me pounding the table and say stocks are going to go up and you know, you're an idiot if you think things are going to get worse. Things could certainly get worse. Like there, there's no shortage of things that could go wrong. Okay. But, it, but if you lean into history, some of these things even surprise me. So the first stat was over the last 86 years, how many times has the S&P 500 posted back-to-back -back negative returns in consecutive years? And I think we had a few guesses in the office. I think you guys were in the neighborhood, mm -hmm. but, but the answer is three. So during the Great, Great Depression in the 30s, during the early 70s when inflation was going nuts, and during the tech bubble in the early 2000s, that's it. Three instances in 86 years where the market was negative two years in a row. Again, I'm not saying that can't happen again. Last year was negative. But if you look at what's happened, in the four, it started in the fourth quarter of 2022, where the market was up about 7%, was up another 4% roughly in the first quarter of 2023. It's up 7-ish percent as of this recording, which it is uh, Wednesday, April 12th. I don't see that information anywhere. No one's talking about that. But the person that's skittish, that's underinvested, that pulled their money out, the market is quietly stacking up wins, and you're worried about where to find the best cash yields for your long-term investment plan. Like that's that's not sound investing. That's knee-jerk emotional investing. And lo and behold, professional investors, re retail investors' favorite asset class today is cash. Mm -hmm. Cash money market funds assets have ballooned higher. So as my good friend Bob Farrell likes to say. When everyone agrees, something else happens. Something else is happening, but people only see what they want to see. And you wrote a blog post about this exact topic, so we'll link that below in the show notes. Do you want? Okay. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to share. So, so the other nugget that I asked the office was, mm -hmm. what is the average return following a negative year for the S and P five hundred? So again, same eighty six years. 86 years going back, there's been 21 instances where the S&P lost money or declined in a year. What is the average return after a decline? And the answer is the average return after a decline is 15%. Okay, so that's not a mic drop thing. It's just empirical evidence, which, which we've wrote about this before. I mean, investing, people want to make it all complex. The fact is good market returns can give way to poor market returns. Poor market returns can give way to good market returns. And when you look at history, roughly 70% of the time the market goes up, roughly 20% of the time the market goes down, and 10% of the time shit gets weird. Okay? So it's important to think in probabilities and not be so surprised by surprises, not being so surprised when the market goes down. The market going, going down is, is very normal. Okay, the market on average goes down 10% in any given year. Okay, that's, that's part of investing. You can't get this. You can't get 8% a year or 9% a year without the occasional dip. Mm -hmm. And I think so many people, when the market goes down, they extrapolate that out into the future. They think their portfolio is broken. They think their advisor is an idiot. They think, they think uh, 
the system's gamed against them. That's not the case. It's completely normal. Mm -hmm. It's the cost of admission. So we've talked in the past about lazy advice from some advisors that just say, stay the course, ride this out, whatever. What are you telling clients today? So first I'll answer your first question because I think, I think it depends, okay? I think that stay the course is fine for people that are building wealth, people that are working, right? Nothing drives me more crazy than a, a 28 year old that's market timing, trying to jump in and out of stocks. That's, that's asinine in my opinion. And I think stay, stay the course is also not optimal if you're paying too much for advice, if you're paying an advisor 2% a year and in, are invested in expensive mutual funds that aren't tax efficient, stay the course is horrible in that case, okay? I also think stay the course is not optimal for those that are about to retire or are currently retired. I think buy and hold is fine for, for again, those folks that are still working and building wealth, not optimal for folks that are retired or living off their portfolio, okay? So what we tell people at Pure is one, I think a lot of the heavy lifting is done up front. So a big part of our portfolio construction process is building a portfolio that reflects the way people feel about risk. And we, we don't anchor to, to weird things. And I'll explain that Be, uh, because I think a lot of people anchor uh, to mental shortcuts and things that don't really make sense. Like you've probably heard someone say, well, I'm a 60-40 investor or, or I'm a balanced investor. Well, when you anchor using a mental shortcut, I don't think you fully understand the range of potential outcomes. Like a 60-40 portfolio last year was down 17 or 18%. Back in 2020, a 60-40 portfolio was down over 20%. If you're anchoring to something like that and don't fully understand the range of potential outcomes, like that's a possibility, you're less likely to stick to a well-thought-out long-term investment plan, okay? Conversely, if I show you, okay, Mr. Client or prospect, this is the range of potential outcomes based on what you've told me is important to you. It might be negative 10%, a loss of $100,000 on a million-dollar portfolio. On the upside, it might be plus 16%, uh, a gain of 160,000. You know, most people don't really pay attention to that side. That's fine. Everyone likes gains. Mm -hmm. What we try to focus on is on the downside, both in percent and dollars, because that makes it real. Okay. So identifying the range of acceptable outcomes, being very forthright and candid, bringing risk to life. Like people understand what risk is by showing them a hundred thousand dollar loss in the next six months. Like that, that suddenly makes it a little more real. And then we're able to build a portfolio that reflects, that reflects those range of outcomes. Okay, so that's, that's probably the most important step. Do, so doing the work today, building a portfolio that reflects the way people feel about risk. The ongoing portfolio management side of that is we, we have a framework to adjust risk up or down, depending on our own rules. So each month we run all of our equity asset classes plus gold through a series of rules. Okay, it's built by us. The outputs have to make sense. We're constantly tweaking this to improve it, but it's a non-emotional way for us to dial up risk when times are good, to dial down risk when times are bad. And I'll give you an example because this is a lot of jargon, I feel like. But back in the spring of 2020, during the apex of the COVID sell-off, we, we were rapidly selling equities, right? Like we didn't top tick the market perfectly, sell at the top and get and get back invested at the bottom. But as things started to break down, 
we were selling equities and eventually we became max underweight equities. So let's say our uh, average risk portfolio, the target was 50% equities. We, we were closer to 30% equities, okay? So we had a framework for managing risk that, that had nothing to do with what I thought happened next because no one knew what happened next. There was no playbook for the COVID sell-off. As the market started to bounce back, and keep in mind, the global economy was shut down. If you went on Twitter, if you turned on the TV, everyone was predicting the end of the world. It was a scary time. We were all locked inside. Kids were at school at home. It was just an awful time. The market started to bounce back. Our rules were telling us to add back to equities. And I've said this before. I felt like I wanted to throw up. I lost sleep over it. My hair turned gray. I lost weight over it. I felt like I wanted to puke. But I leaned into our process. I leaned into the, the pre-built system that we had for an environment just like this. Because again, making gut calls in this type of environment probably didn't end well. We got our clients fully back invested and we actually went overweight equities for the second half of 2020, which in hindsight turned, turned out to be a good decision. So Can to sum up it. all that, build a portfolio yeah. that reflects the way that you feel about risk. Don't anchor to 60-40. Don't anchor to balanced investor. Don't anchor to what your aunt does. And then part two of that, have a non-emotional framework, a process for managing risk. I've, I've said this time and again, the last three years, Nothing has made sense. If you're working with an advisor, if you're managing your own money and you're making decisions based on gut instinct, on your own personal experiences, on the way that you view the world, it probably hasn't ended well for you. And just what, what a messy environment to try to draw cause and effects, draw cause and effect and predict. So try to build a non-emotional framework for making investment decisions. Right. And once you do that, it doesn't really matter what is happening or what is going on because you can stick to your process. Yeah. How would you feel about going over some of the questions that we've got from clients recently? Let's just say that, again, I've been doing this a long time. The last six months, I've been slid a page of like 300 articles. I mean, a, a small forest in the Northwest must have died about why, well, yeah, about why the world was ending. And this was from a prospect. He slid it across the table and locked eyes with me. And I was deeply uncomfortable. Every day I get an email either about a recession, uh, the end of the US dollar, which I'm blogging about next week, which is, I can't wait to blog about it because nothing that's in the mainstream media now reconciles with what is actually happening. Okay, folks, the dollar's not going away. And I'm gonna back that up with empirical evidence and, and trade flows and reserves and all of these evidence-based narratives that, that will bring people back down to reality. And then what I touched on earlier in the call, I, I get a lot of research notes passed along to me from other firms that are talking about what happens next. And for those of you that haven't seen my series on the perils of forecasting, every single year, I've done it for six years, I track what Wall Street says about the following year and then a year later, I go back and look and see how they did, okay? And last year was the worst year in the series and one of the worst years ever for Wall Street where they missed by something like 25 or 26%. The average S&P forecast missed by 26%. Yet people hang on these smart sounding narratives and analysts and chief investment officers because it sounds, it sounds like they know what happens next. And there's this weird myth that people think there's somewhere someone out there knows what happens next and it's not the case 
the brightest minds are getting it wrong. And I'm not talking about barely, barely missing. I'm talking about if you had this job performance in any other field, you, you, you like you would have been fired yesterday. Except again, for maybe the weatherman. <laughs> except for maybe the weatherman who's been wrong time and again. Well, that's a different subject. But if you understand the complex against you and, and what, what game they're playing and what they're trying to get you to do, one, it's working. Know that you are the product. And three, you should develop an information filter. It's fine to read these for entertainment, but, but when it starts to leak into your investment process, to leak in the way that you're doing things, like your retirement plan and all that, you've, you've lost at that point. No, I just want to say, again, things can get worse. I, I'm not a Pollyanna. I'm not pounding the table for everyone to pile into stocks. I just want to balance things out again. It feels like we're up against a propaganda machine, and I, I just am a big fan of reality. I feel, I feel like I'm a realist. I, I read a lot. I read both sides. I, I understand the investment la landscape. I, I understand how big Wall Street firms operate. I worked at a big Wall Street firm for seven, eight years. Uh, so I've been on both sides. And I, I'm just trying to help people balance things out to make better decisions. That was a great summary. And all of the blogs that we mentioned in this podcast episode will be linked in the show notes. So tis the season for Wall Street forecasting. The market is quietly stacking up wins. By the time this podcast goes live, back-to-back -back calendar year losses for stocks or something along those lines. Right. So thanks for listening to this episode of Blind Spots. As always, you can reach us at insight at pureportfolios.com. We're happy to answer your questions, take your comments. As Nick always says, insults and feedback. And we will see you in the next episode.